The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Coming to you from the beautiful, sunny, but absolutely frigid uh, Delaware Valley in the studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. We're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. Uh, you can reach us at BoomerGenerationRadio at gmail.com if you have a comment or a question or a suggestion. And, of course, you can like the Boomer Generation Radio page on Facebook, uh, Boomer Generation Radio on Facebook. We have um, a variety of things to talk about, some doctors to, coming on today, and um, we hope to do that, uh, exploring various aspects of healthy aging and palliative care on today's show, and we'll do that, and we'll start right after this message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, founded on Quaker Principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit Kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our first segment here on Boomer Generation Radio today, and we are pleased to welcome Dr. Ken Coburn, who's the CEO of Health Quality Partners here in the Philadelphia area. Dr. Coburn, are you with us? I am. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Good to good to hear your voice there. Um, welcome. Welcome to Boomer Generation Radio, and uh, I, I really appreciate your time um, Joining us here, and, and, and some of the material that I was looking at that you sent in uh, prior to the show, you're, you're talking about uh, health quality partners innovating new programs to keep chronically ill older adults healthy and independent. What does that mean? Well, uh, it, it turns out, as I think a lot of people recognize, that our society uh, is aging, um, and that's a good good thing if you think about what it means in terms of the progress of healthcare and medical care over the last several decades that were, on the one hand, now have uh, increasingly the chance to, to live into an older, longer uh, life than we used to in the turn of the century. When my grandparents were born, uh, just after 1900, the average life expectancy in the U.S. was about 48 years. So we've massively improved that. But in that short period of time that we've done so, we've recognized, I think, increasingly that as people do age, as they do tend to uh, accrue more chronic conditions like diabetes and chronic lung disease and high blood pressure and the like, that our system of care um, doesn't always help them do as well as we could by recognizing how those multiple conditions sometimes affect people's ability to be maintain their active, independent lives and stay healthy and, and um, at a functioning level they would like. And our organization is a nonprofit committed to trying to do the research and development to try to understand what kinds of services and what kinds of uh, support 
we can provide to uh, that population to help them avoid complications from those chronic illnesses, to keep them active and healthy uh, as they as they get on in years. So, uh, I mean, I'm aware, of, as all of us are, um, of people who in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and older, and maybe even in earlier and younger ages, really dealing with chronic illnesses that last decades and decades. A friend of mine in, with multiple sclerosis, other people that, you know, as he's talking about with diabetes, other issues. So what types of programs and, and support aspects does um, – Health quality partners begin to talk about when they when they all sit with a family and an individual. Yeah, and I think that starting point is the is the key one that you mentioned. That I think our our system in general often under um, uh, appreciates and and under leverages, which is starting with a uh, extensive conversation with uh, the patient and their family or caregiver system. That's an extremely extremely important starting point and. The, the the best uh, programs and supports to uh, provide to that patient and family really stem from that conversation and what what their specific needs and challenges and personal goals and interests are. So in our model, for example, um, what we would call our initial assessment is a very extensive uh, review of the uh, not only the medical and surgical history but uh, family history, the social environment the person lives in, uh, their work environment if they're still working, um, the home setting, and really tries to take a very, very broad and deep inventory of those elements, which we're increasingly learning, uh, all of which have more and more to do with our our health outcomes, not just the, our, our diagno- medical diagnosis and the pills and other treatments we're prescribed. So that initial assessment will often take two to three visits, um, typically an hour or more each time, to really get that good inventory. And from that, the issues that emerge as uh, being putting people at risk that we could do something about in a preventive way are identified. So whether it's fall risk uh, and injury due to falls or whether it's uh, early cognitive decline, a little bit less uh, sharp mental acuity or memory but not yet a dementia situation, or whether it's uh, a variety of you know substance abuse um, or uh, not understanding their illnesses or how to take their medications, the list is pretty long uh, as to things that could threaten people's uh, uh, health going forward. And we try to identify those risks and then put together a customized portfolio of interventions that would help that patient and their families better uh, address those and prevent those things from happening. So really, from what I'm hearing, Health Quality Partners provides a, a personal approach, a patient-specific, almost family-specific, on how to support someone dealing with long-term chronic illness. Would, would that be a correct assessment? That, that's right. That's right. And I think that that approach is, is being borne out more and more in studies, uh, not just ours, but, but other groups that have focused on that way of working with uh, uh, higher risk, chronically ill uh, patients and families. I think that's exactly right. So, Dr. Comer, let's suppose, how does a family or an individual who may need this, they find themselves in a situation where 
dynamics are changing, how in the world do they get to know you? How, how do they contact health quality partners to begin this process? Well, that's a, that's a wonderful question, and I'm a little, uh, you know, um, anguished to say, you know, that um, there are not enough programs like ours or even enough bandwidth in our own program to accommodate the, the very uh, vast need that there is out there for folks who could benefit from this type of model. Um, we are largely, as I mentioned, a nonprofit sort of research organization, and part of the reason why we're focusing on specific research opportunities around this is because we're trying our, our very best to uh, produce all of the evidence and scientific data needed to continue to persuade policymakers and insurers and others who pay for health care that these kinds of models are, you know, quote, worth it, not just in terms of the, of the uh, quality of life and better health outcomes, but in terms of the cost savings down the road that, that accrues by keeping people from needing to go to the hospital or the emergency rooms for some of these avoidable complications. Um, that's been a very hard uh, job. Uh, Health Quality Partners has been around for 15 years, and we're not alone in, in uh, being among the folks trying to work in this area and prove uh, to everyone's satisfaction that this is increasingly how our system should be moving. Um, we, are, um, uh, we are currently partnering with the Aetna Health Insurance uh, Company, and for six years they have been uh, good supporters of our work and have helped to make our service available to members of their health plan uh, who meet various risk criteria and work with uh, family practice and uh, general internal medicine practices in the region. Uh, and so that's a, that's a wonderful opportunity for us and our team to, to try to make this work available to others. Uh, and we are continuing to work with organizations like Doylestown Health, uh, which is a very progressive community health system uh, in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, who uh, are looking to sponsor greater availability of this service to their patients. So we are trying to make those partnerships to allow more people uh, a means to uh, be able to access the service, uh, but we, we still have a long way to go. We're speaking with Dr. Ken Coburn, the CEO of Health Quality Partners here in uh, Delaware Valley. Uh, Dr. Coburn, you, you mentioned that um, in your working with Edna, the referrals have to meet, if I heard you correctly, certain risk criteria. So there's a threshold. Or is there a threshold for a, a patient, a family to get through before they access your service? Um, currently, there is, and, and again, I want to emphasize that this is, you know, sort of uh, in the world of our healthcare delivery system. This is sort of cutting edge stuff that we're trying to advance. So, th so those criteria could change, uh, but right now they basically consist of being a, uh, a member of the Aetna Health Plan uh, for, with Medicare. Uh, being in one of the practices that are participating, and there are about 150 or so primary care practices in the region that do work with us on this, and having one of the major chronic illnesses like heart failure, diabetes, chronic lung disease, or coronary artery disease, and based on 
recent uh, patterns of, of use of the health system, evidence that um, a person's starting to run into trouble, that they're starting to show up more at the emergency room or have had an admission to the hospital uh, or things like that, that would be a marker that that person seems to especially need some extra help right now uh, with a program like this. And right now, uh, Health Quality Partners, your model is is localized within this particular geographic area. Do you, is that correct? Yes, we're in about six or seven counties in the southeastern Pennsylvania area. So are you aware of other models like uh, Health Quality Partners that are popping up around the country? Um, sure. I mean, there are a variety of uh, well-tested models. There's a model called the GRACE model. It's uh, G-R-A-C-E. That is, uh, was uh, promoted first in the Midwest. Uh, that is a geriatric-based sort of intensive model that includes a team of physicians, nurses, social workers, and others. Um, and that model, like ours, has had strong evidence of being effective in preventing um, uh, complications and avoidable outcomes of chronic illness. The, there aren't many that have that level of evidence that are strong. There is a very uh, well-tested and very important transitional care model for people moving from various levels of, um, of care. And actually, that model, the, the transitional care model, was pioneered by uh, Dr. Mary Naylor, who's a professor of nursing down at the University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia. Uh, Mary is a, is, a, is a colleague and a, and a collaborator with us, and she and her team at the New Cortland Center for Transitions and Health have done a lot of research in this area, and that care transition model uses an advanced practice nurse as people come out of the hospital for a period of time while they're re-equilibrating back at home and has proven to be a highly effective model as well with excellent uh, evidence in, in scientific uh, tests. So there are things out there, but I know that most of those ones that I mentioned are much like uh, we at Health Quality Partners, uh, still working with a variety of, of payer partners and trying to continue to expand access to, to these models. And I'll mention, lastly, that there are uh, various uh, visiting nurse and home care agencies that um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily have exactly these models, but there certainly are groups out there trying to uh, improve their service to, to the community and to patients that, that do offer um, maybe not exactly this, but, but something that could support families on, uh, in, under various fee-for-service bases or, um, or, again, perhaps through a person's health plan, depending on um, how they're contracted. Right. We, we've had some of those people on the show, and we have some other people actually scheduled for, um, I think, March coming on again. That there, There's this, uh, to one of a better term, explosion in some of the awareness of this. And, and actually, right after this break uh, from our friends at Kendall, I, I want to when we come back, I, I really want to ask you the, the why question of all this. We're speaking with Dr. Ken Coburn, CEO of Health Quality Partners here in the Delaware Valley area, and we'll be back with Dr. Coburn uh, right after this message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. 
Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing, and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit Kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our first segment here of Boomer Generation Radio. Today we're speaking with Dr. Ken Coburn, the CEO of Health Quality Partners here in the greater Philadelphia area, southeastern Pennsylvania. So, Dr. Coburn, you're you're talking about this, um, your model, some other models, um, in the United States and as well as home health care agencies, et cetera. What's, why this explosion, uh, even with a small e, in these areas? Is it, is it, is it the realization that, um, just, as you said at the beginning, we're just so many people getting older and there's so many more needs and so fewer people to take care of us? Is that one of the generation, gener, generating factors? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's something that we realize in our own lives when we look at our own family network and and look at our aging relatives, our friends and colleagues, you know, who uh, may have chronic conditions and are getting older. And it's very, very apparent in the data uh, of all of the, the healthcare data from Medicare and from the health plans that the most cost and the highest use of, of acute medical services, the more intensive kinds of services at hospitals and emergency rooms, are, are driven by the folks with multiple chronic conditions uh, as they age. And further sort of review of that data shows that, and there is some conflict about this or some controversy about this in the, in the what's called the health services research field, there is some controversy about how much of those uh, episodes of, of intensive uh, care at hospitals and ERs are avoidable and preventable among this population, among the older chronically ill population. But most, um, most researchers are, are continuing to feel that there, are cert- there is certainly a, a good chunk of them that are. Some of us, like myself, feel that there is a very significant amount of those uh, kinds of events that are preventable and avoidable, but that we simply haven't designed the kinds of programs yet to really uh, address those needs. And I think that, you know, most of us also realize that when you go to a physician's office, even if you have a terrific doc or team of doctors with specialists, you, you spend relatively very little time in, in you know in their company uh, with them in the offices or even in the hospital, and 99.9% of the time uh, that you have is at home, where you're essentially trying to self-manage and continue to take care of yourself under the you know direction and treatment plan of, of your physicians, but that. That's often a much bigger challenge uh, for many people than we realize. And so I think all those things that you mentioned and, and the ones I just ticked off are, are, are part of what's driving that explosion and recognition that we need to do a, a much better job in this area and offer a much uh, more uh, comprehensive array of services that really address the true needs people have in their homes uh, as they're living with these conditions. One of the things you mentioned before was that you're involved in the research um, that surrounds all of this issue, all of these issues. Could you just comment, uh, kind of briefly, on 
what your re- what kind of research you are doing and what you're finding, especially as it relates to this 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 growing concern of just trying to keep people out of the system, out of the hospital for as long as possible. What are you, how do you, what are you researching? How are you doing? What are you finding? Yes. Um, so there are a number of uh, research activities we've been involved with. Some have been demonstration projects uh, sponsored through Medicare, through the Centers for Medicare uh, and Medicaid Services, um, some have been projects we've done with groups like Aetna and uh, Doylestown Hospital. And what we've tried to do is use the data and, and rigorously implement the model uh, with a high degree of reliability and assess what impact we're actually having, uh, how much we can influence uh, reducing hospitalizations and emergency room visits and, and cost in the end but as well as longevity and functional status, keeping people independent. So in one eight-year period of a demonstration project we we were involved in, we did demonstrate a a 25% reduction in in deaths uh, as a result of people getting this service compared to usual care without it, uh, and a significant reduction in hospitalizations and emergency room visits for folks at higher risk. Now, there's, a, there's a lot of complexity in doing this research, and we, we need a lot more. Those, those are uh, pretty dramatic-sounding results, and I believe they are. But we need to test this at, at larger scale in multiple settings and continue to demonstrate the effectiveness of these models and continue to engineer them to be more and more effective for people. Because one thing we have learned and that CMS and others have spent a lot of uh, time and money on researching and evaluating is that not every program uh, in this category is, is effective, that uh, how, how the services are rendered, the frequency and intensity of contacts, how many of those contacts are in-person versus telephonic, uh, whether there are group models associated with, with the program. For example, um, we've had seated chair exercise programs and, and group education programs around weight management and other lifestyle behavior change interventions. You know, how, how robust the portfolio of offerings is to people and how they're delivered seems to be very, very important in how effective the programs actually are. So that's the kind of research that we've been uh, working on. One of the things I, I keep reading, and I'm sure you do too, in, in the popular press, is the uh, rise in the use of, uh, for the one of a better term, electronics. So are you looking in or do you see a greater use of um, electronic care management than somebody who is at home and needing care through the use of a chip or Skype or other types of um, you know, non-traditional, if we can use that term, uh, uh, you, things could could be better managed in their care? I think so, but I think we're at a very early stage of thinking about how to do that most effectively. And I think it's going to depend on the patients and the family systems and caregiver systems they're in as to how readily they can adapt to using some of that technology. And it's also going to depend on the response system of where that data goes and who's on the team to respond to it and reach back out to the patient family 
as uh, indicators might suggest they're they're running into some problems mm-hmm. and to be preventive and proactive about that. And that's what the research literature suggests so far is that as people have tried to implement these new technologies, it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, sometimes they seem to add a great deal uh, to the care and sometimes not. And I think it's those those variables about how well the patient families adapt to it and how well the care team systems getting the information respond to it seem to be the key elements there. So in, in the beginning, you, you talked about this development of this family-oriented and individual care plan, uh, really sort of like a holistic approach. So I'm wondering, uh, before we start running out of time for this segment, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering in the development of that plan with people dealing with long-term chronic illness and how to manage that chronic illness, the role of the the spiritual component of a, of a person and also because, as you know, as you've seen, I'm sure, and as I've seen as a clergy person, the mental health component of of what happens with an individual with long-term chronic illness sometimes, is that built into these conversations? Is it built – are these things built into the way you approach in these three, you know, one-hour sessions that create this model? It's absolutely essential, absolutely essential, and and I couldn't agree with you more on a personal level, and also I think the research is very strong, and that's another area we have under underutilized as uh, the insight around the, the spiritual, uh, behavioral, and social uh, roles and opportunities there. There are many, many folks whose anxiety, uh, understandably, uh, rises when they are socially isolated, when they uh, don't feel they have the support of either their faith-based community or family or social networks, and it has a dramatic impact on health outcomes. And we have, I think, as a society, done a very poor job leveraging those kinds of resources and connecting them with uh, the people who can benefit most from them. And, and, and there are many of us who can benefit from those interventions. The- just raises one little question as I've run into this in increasing amounts. In the families and individuals you're dealing with, what's the component of just loneliness and isolation and how does that impact a person's ability it's to a deal? Fabulous, fabulous question. And it's a fascinating one. And I think we're still learning a lot more about this. Um, there was a very well done study done uh, in Europe that looked at the question of social isolation. And it was a very interesting study because they asked people both how on a, on a sort of a, a, a validated scale how lonely they felt, and then they also just objectively measured how often they had social contact. How often did a family member contact them in person or by phone? How often did a neighbor knock on the door and come over? How often were they in the company of of uh, fellow members of a faith-based community, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the data was fascinating. It turned out in that study, which was well done, that the sense of loneliness had far less impact on health outcomes, measurable health outcomes in terms of mortality and hospitalizations, than did social isolation. That people who are not being checked in on, who are not having contact with neighbors, friends, families, faith-based groups, those people had a 26% increase in mortality, even when you controlled for all the other factors of their medical conditions and, and other uh, issues that would put them at risk for, for, for death. So 
there's something there that's very powerful that the human contact is essential for, not to mention somebody uh, identifying somebody getting into problems early and helping respond to that in a proactive way. Um, so I think we still have a lot to learn about that, but it's a very important issue. Dr. Ken Coburn, the CEO of Health Quality Partners here in southeastern Pennsylvania, really thank you very much for your time and your expertise and knowledge and sharing with us about some of your very, very exciting and pioneering work. And I wish you continued success and good luck in this endeavor. Certainly the we need it, the society needs it, and uh, I appreciate what you're doing. So thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Before we move into our second segment with Dr. Michael Levy uh, and a discussion about palliative care, speaking about an, another aspect of really, uh, you know, what Dr. Coburn was talking about as well, I want to remind you of a very, a very good friend of the show's uh, Peter Hecht and the Hecht Investment Group uh, over in southern New Jersey. They're part of Johnny Montgomery Scott, and they provide concierge financial consulting and planning services. Uh, Peter and his group, using a formal investment process as their foundation, make sure that you as a client receive a rapid response to all of your questions. And in, especially in this rather volatile uh, financial environment, uh, we know that there's very, there are very few needs greater than our own when it comes to this and uh, trying to get some making sense out of the ups and downs. The uh, Hecht Investment Group also provides experience guidance as well as an efficient management process. And uh, Peter and his group can, and can assist you in connecting to the investment banking department, which specializes in assisting middle market companies achieve their strategic goals. We invite you to uh, contact the Hecht Investment Group toll-free. Their number is 855-289-2168. That's 855-289-2168. Or you can visit them at the hechtinvestmentgroup.com. And the Hecht Investment Group is also on Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Facebook. And Jenny Montgomery Scott is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, FINRA, and the SIPC. And to take us to our second segment, and Dr. Levy, let's uh, go back to a little Joni Mitchell. And um, this is another one of her sort of like greatest hits album, CD, song. See if you remember this one.
this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approaches to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our second segment of today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, and we are pleased to welcome to the microphone Dr. Michael Levy, the immediate past chair for palliative care here at Fox Chase Cancer Center here in uh, the greater Philadelphia area. Dr. Levy, welcome to Boomer Generation Radio. Good morning. Thanks for being invited. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good, good. Palliative care, uh, it it continues to get uh, a tremendous amount of press. Uh, There seems to be a a growing concern about it, um, people wanting to know about it. Uh, for those of us who are lay people, you know, uh, tell me real fast, give me a basic definition of what palliative care is, Dr. Levy. The simplest definition is pain uh, focused on improvement of quality of care. Another way to, to look look at it, it's kind of what we did in the uh, before World War One, when we all we could do is be with patients, talk with them, and try to um, get them better if we could, but always focus on comfort. So this is uh, when you comfort care, and, and, and is that would that be a correct uh, making someone comfortable? Well, but it it is that is correct, but it it goes beyond comfort because not only do we focus on physical comfort, the the anticipation, prevention, and treatment of symptoms, but we also um, recognize that those symptoms occur in the human being who has then a psychological, emotional, uh, spiritual, and financial uh, reactions to those symptoms, and all of those need to be addressed. Okay, so uh, the popular the popular understanding is, as I think you alluded to, is this is pain management. Is that correct? That's, where it, that's the easiest place to start because it's very concrete. Okay. Well, let me start with the easiest. You know, you know, I grew up in Mount Airy in Philly, so we have to keep it real simple. <laughs> so, the pain. So, but but the level of. Well, let me. Re, I'll ask it another way. In today's world, in today's uh, management of people and, and illness, is there any reason that some a human being has to endure uh, real excruciating pain? No. And we have the tools, the medicines, the interventions, and the psychological and physical therapies to be able to make pain manageable, if not minimal, in, 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 most, in almost all patients. And correct me if I'm wrong, but also one of the other popular uh, maybe misunderstandings of palliative care is, oh, that's only for end-of-life situations. Is that true or false? It's the misconception is that it's for end of life. And you have to look at palliative care historically and in and, and form of a, the, the transformation of medical care. That as we learned more and more about what caused pain, uh, the focus 
appropriately to fix the cause, kind of left the, the residual symptom in the dust. So the first palliative care, the first model of it was hospice. Mm-hmm. And hospice was for the last six months of life. And hospice continues to be the best developed, best reimbursed model of palliative care, but it's only for patients who their doctors can predict that they will uh, more than likely die in the next six months. So the the guest we had prior to, you know, in the first segment, who, who's dealing with uh, examining procedures dealing with long-term chronic illness. Some of that chronic illness, as you know, I guess, I'm, I'm sure, uh, sometimes deals with a, pa- a patient dealing with significant pain. So palliative care management in someone dealing with long-term chronic illness, that would also be a use of palliative care, correct? Yes. The palliative care grew, you know, grew out of hospice and then in the the 70s, we realized we could do this in this population without addiction and tolerance and and sedation. We could get better function. In the 80s, it was applied to patients with advanced cancer because why do you have to be dying to get all the symptom management? Mm-hmm. And then in the 90s, is well, why do you have to just have advanced cancer? And so it then got extended to other incurable illnesses. Uh, and then uh, in this uh, century, we have looked at any life-threatening illness and look at simultaneous care. So it's not either palliative care or standard medical care. Is you have to do them both. And so it no longer has to have a, uh, a limited prognosis. Although, given the limits of our workforce, um, that's still where it primarily focuses. When you mean limits of our workforces, is that another way of saying there aren't enough qualified palliative care specialists in the United States? Right. We expect there'll be about, uh, you know, in 2020, there'll be maybe 5,000 too few certified board uh, specialists in palliative care. Wow. So we're expanding that workforce by increasing training, and we're making wonderful use of, uh, of, of nurse practitioners. So talk to me about it. So nurse practitioners are also being trained as palliative care specialists, so they could be part of the team, correct? Right. Well, the, the whole team, and that's the other aspect of palliative care, it's not just a doctor or a nurse. It's an interdisciplinary team that has a doctor, nurse, social worker, chaplain, volunteers, uh, and um, to extend the, the limited number of physicians, nurse practitioners um, can be you know, who can write prescriptions in most states have been incorporated. It's like they've been incorporated in primary care and in urgent care centers mm-hmm. uh, that they can handle uh, the basic level and as they get more experience, uh, even complex palliative care issues. So, Dr. Levy, talk to me. You, you mentioned this palliative care team. So you had all this experience over at Fox Chase and the Cancer mm-hmm. Center. Talk to me about 
how this team is is put together and because uh, I I would venture to say that a lot of people really are not aware that you know that this, this this team or holistic approach exists in many situations. It, they'll say, well, there's a palliative care doctor who comes in or she comes in and prescribes, and you know that's it. But this team approach uh, is this a relatively new phenomenon? And and how did you how do they interact with each other? Well, the team, again, grew out of the hospice model. Hmm. Uh, it, there is an oncology team as well without palliative care. Almost all good medicine is done by a team. I think what's unique in hospice and in palliative care, it's that it's interdisciplinary, not multidisciplinary, meaning you're not seeing five different consultants in five different buildings. You're seeing a variety of, of, of people who all have a basic sense of what your goals and expectations are and problems. And typically, like our team, I mean, we're constantly interacting. We have at least uh, one formal meeting a week where we go over uh, complicated uh, patients and make sure that there is a care plan that everyone uh, agrees to and follows. Does that would that care plan include? Because this came up again with uh, Dr. Coburn in the first section. First session. Would that care plan also include consultations with the family? Uh, the patient and family are the focus of care. You can't do palliative care well without involving the family. And even in the patient who is inappropriately trying to protect their family in what we call the conspiracy of silence, our goal becomes to bring everybody in the same room and let them all hear the same information and ask questions. Uh, and then you have common goals and expectations instead of an isolated patient. So I'm, and how often has a family when they're confronted with some of these issues and realities and decision-making, um, how difficult is it for a family to, who may not have any medical knowledge at all and just sees their loved one, you know, in pain and, and, and dealing very, with a low quality of life, are, do they get very aggressive, you know, do everything you're, you know, do everything possible or is it sometimes you have to sort of like moderate, um, the amount of medication so that an individual can get over a specific hump? Well, I think that in in a community hospital, often it would be the primary care nurse who connects with the family and gets a sense of things could be better and might request uh, a palliative care consultation. In cancer centers, um, they're often brought in either regularly or by any of the treating team. And then um, the reason why, it, it, rather than medicine is uh, problem-oriented, palliative care is goal-oriented. Explain. So that if somebody wants, I mean, I've, uh, I had a patient who, if she took 30 milligrams of morphine, she had a pain of one but she was a little sleepy. Mm -hmm. If she took 20 milligrams, her pain was a four, 
But as soon as she started playing with her grandchildren, she had no pain. Mm -hmm. So we balance comfort uh, and function. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Levy, the immediate past chair of palliative care medicine at Fox Chase Cancer Center here in suburban Philadelphia. And you're listening to the Boomer Generation Radio right here on WWDB AM 860, streaming live on WWDBAM.com. We'll be back with Dr. Levy right after this message from our good friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our last part of our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. And we're speaking with Dr. Michael Levy, the immediate past chair of palliative care medicine at Fox Chase Cancer Center. Uh, Dr. Levy, what's the role of um, one's own psychological makeup in pain? And so, you know, on... Have you seen a lot of individuals who present with pain, but really the, the, the genesis of that pain is more psychological? That kind of psychologically generated pain is very unusual. Everyone will have a psychologic reaction to physical pain, mm-hmm. and they may minimize it, be a stoic. They may enhance it if they're overly emotion, emotional, depressed, anxious, so, I mean, in, in, it's very uncommon, and not that psychiatrists don't and psychologists don't deal with that, but most of the unrelieved pain out there has a physical reason, whether you can see it on a scan or in, you know, infer it from the presenting symptoms. It, have you seen it recently in your practice and in, in various hospitals the use of meditation and mindfulness issue? This keeps coming up in, in, in dealing with pain. I think that all of these integrative therapies have uh, a very important role. They have to be tuned to the patient. The -hmm. patient has to be able to focus, be interested in it. But our experience um, is that if you don't get rid of 70, 80% of the physical pain, they won't be able to focus or be hypnotized uh, or, or any, any of these other measures to have them work. Right. So I look to them as the last 15 or 20% of the pain or perhaps the patient's reaction to the pain because if they uh, can get some success from relaxation, Breathing, it empowers them to think they have a little bit more control. The, uh, I want to ask you a question. You, you were at Fox Chase Cancer Center. You know that place. You know the, the, the emphasis um, on treating, dealing, healing individuals with cancer. What, what's, what's, what was your reaction now to uh, this announcement at the State of the Union and, and Vice President Biden's charge of creating a moonshot type of program to cure cancer how 
to be blunt about it, how realistic is this given the state of the art and research? There has been a lot of new, exciting research in cancer at the molecular level, small molecules at the immune level. I think some of the advertising I've seen on TV is more outrageous than a moonshot because <laughs> it kind of puts pressure on a patient and it presumes the doctor isn't reading the literature. Right. I think it's a it's always a good idea because we have had less and less funding uh, to research that there be an effort. When I uh, was a discussant of the president's cancer panel, uh, Nixon's uh, cancer uh, act in '71, um, the I read that law. And I was distressed by the fact that the law, nowhere in the letter of the law, did it talk about treating patients. It was just treating cancer. Uh huh. So the moonshot, you know, we have to have the rocket to get us there, but we better have a good spacesuit and good safety things and deal with the issues of people experiencing life-threatening illness. So I think an infusion of money is wonderful. I think it's much more exciting now for opportunities than it was 35 years ago when I was training. Uh, but I don't think palliative care will disappear. Oh no, not at all. Uh, in the next decade. There's a people keep now talking about in in, in the popular press more and more that that there's no such thing as cancer per se, but there are cancers and that there are, you know, multiple definitions and examples and almost patient-specific. Would you agree with that and, and your experience? Uh, I would imagine that that would present some challenges with each individual patient. Yes, I think, you know, focusing specific on the tumor it's kind of like how many colds are there? Mm-hmm. How many flus are there? Most people don't have influenza. They have one of 900 viruses. So now that we had the genome project, which did take an infusion of money for us to learn uh, human genetics, we can start to see some of the mistakes that occur as cells divide, see which one of those mistakes cause uncontrolled growth that would lead to cancer? Why do some of them sneak by our body's immune system? And we've learned, just like we've learned even in my son's high school tech text, the, the, the tree of animals was different than it was when I went to school because we've learned different genetic uh, traits that you can say where someone came from. So I think you're right, it is many diseases, and I'm always uh, careful to tell a patient, well, I actually always ask a patient, do you, have, do you know anyone who's had cancer? Mm-hmm. And then find out what kind of cancer that is, because it might set them up for uh, inappropriate expectations. If a friend had breast cancer, that's very treatable. If they had pancreatic cancer, that's not as treatable. And so their expectations, the type of chemo that reactions they're going to have. So at many levels, 
cancer is a complex disease, and we're learning now that cancer, even when you think you know what it is, it can then change, and that's how you develop resistance to initial therapies. So it's very complicated, and the key is open communication and honesty. What, what do you mean by that? Well, doctors have to talk about reality. Take, you know, tinctured with, with, with hope and reassurance. Mm-hmm. So it's often I have patients who might be angry when the cancer comes back and they say, the surgeon said he got it all. Right. Well, he should say, I got everything I could see. But if, if he got it all, why am I getting six more months of chemotherapy after my lumpectomy? Right. So it's, we have to set the stage that cancer is a chronic illness. Many of them, we get long-term remissions. At some point, we're comfortable saying there's a cure. But um, it's, it's important that people have a really clear understanding in their informed consent about what's the best that's going to happen and what am I going to have to um, put up with to get there. You, you, you've alluded to the genetic um, revolution and you know the cracking of the code and everything. In your experience as a palliative care physician, um, in layman's terms, because uh, obviously I'm not a I'm not a, a medical doctor. Is is there a some type in, in individuals a genetic proclivity for pain or a proclivity sometimes for less pain in their genetic structure? Is that a is that a too simplistic of a statement, or is it is it totally off the chart? Or have you experienced people's I guess pain level? You know, I can handle more or, or handle less. My experience that most of it is uh, personality rather than biology. Really. But there are, we know that there's an interaction of female hormones and pain medicines and hormones. So women in general have a lower tolerance to pain. There are certain genetic disorders that people are very sensitive to pain. There's a life-threatening disorder where they don't feel any pain and therefore they keep bumping around the world until they die because pain doesn't warn them that mm. they shouldn't do things. So I think the genetics is right now much more important in cancer care. Genetics does affect some of the other medicines that we use for pain, not just the opiates. And we're starting to, d- to look at prediction of what, one pa- what medicine might work for one patient and not another. But you, my sense is that though you see that palliative care, uh, it, this is really the beginning, unless I'm mishearing you, of, of an explosion or an expansion of knowledge and use of palliative care treatment and comfort care for a, vor- a wide variety of illnesses and pe- people on life stages. And, and this is sort of like the beginning of this revolution. Would I be correct in that? Well, it, it's a delayed revolution for two reasons. One, because of all the potential side effects of pain medicines and old medical teaching that you needed the pain to treat the disease. 
not every physician is ag- as aggressive in treating the pain. They have the expectation, if I get rid of the tumor, they won't have any more pain. Mm-hmm. Many physicians really want to dedicate their careers to cancer research, and the patients go to them for the latest therapy. Right. So we are teaching physicians the importance of simultaneous palliative care. It's patient family-centered care. And we're also, and most important thing about shows like this, people have to be their own advocates. You know, you, you, you just had sponsors who talked about nursing homes and investments. So it's not like we don't plan for the future. Uh, the problem is we don't plan for the last year or two. Right. We, there, less than a quarter of Americans have living wills. Um, and I think that it's important that, that people talk about this from their primary physician, but also from the, uh, their family and, and friends, we need to create a consumer de- demand for it, then we will have the revolution. Well, thank you, Dr. Levy, and especially that last point about advocacy and personal advocacy. Listen, we thank you very much, Dr. Michael Levy, immediate past chair of palliative care medicine at Fox Chase Cancer Center. Thank you for lots of information. Continue good luck. Say hello to the family for me and to all of you. Uh, take care. Have a great week. Stay warm. And uh, we'll see you next week on another edition of Boomer Generation Radio here on WWDBAM 860 in Philadelphia.